The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning. Welcome to all of you who are here in person. Welcome to everyone who is joining us online. Grace and peace of our Lord Jesus be with you. I'm going to have him sing uh, Our God is Alive every time before I get up to preach. Amen. It makes the sermon a whole lot better. No, no comment on that, okay? All right, so this is, uh, our vision here at the Springs is that we gather together to worship the Father, uh, that we grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus' Son, and that we go empowered by God's Spirit. And this year is, our theme is uh, Grow. We want to grow, we want to focus on growth and discipleship this year to be more and more to reflect the image of Christ. And one of the ways this church grows is through, by, is connecting with one another. In fact, we have a ministry that's uh, called Connection Groups. And while it's been a challenge over the past year to connect with one another, we feel like that it is vital for Christian vitality and faith and growth that we connect with one another. So I want to ask Jason Henley to stand for a moment, just so you can recognize, just know who he is. Jason is our Connections Delegate. So if you want to connect more with people in this church, you want to find ways to connect and grow, reach out to Jason or find one of the elders or one of the ministers and we can connect you. Jason and I have been talking. He's got some creative ideas about how we can connect more and more in a time of COVID. We are in a series, God and Technology, Faithfulness in the Digital Age. Let's begin with prayer this morning. God, as always, we give you thanks for your word. For in your word, Jesus, you connected with us so that we can connect with you. So today, we ask for ears to hear. We ask for hearts to be open and willing to follow. And for lives and bodies that will obey. God, I ask for the gift of preaching this morning in the name of Jesus, the one who connects all of us, we pray. Amen. So about five decades ago, there was a group of uh, computer scientists working out of a modest space at UCLA, and they accomplished something that had never been seen before. They successfully created the world's first network connection. Two machines on a campus that were linked together virtually, one at UCLA, one at Stanford. And it was part of what was known then as the ARPANET and became the first, uh, became the prelude to what we call the Internet. So on October 29, 1969, a team of UCLA students led by their professor, whose name was Leonard uh, uh, Kleinrock, they sent this message, the very first message ever sent was this. Click to the next slide. 
That was the first message. An L and an O. And if you're thinking, what does that mean? Well, what they intended to send was a message, the word login. But they got the L and the O, and the whole system crashed, and that's all that went through. But that was the very first message sent on what we know today as the Internet. And now there's trillions upon trillions of messages sent all the time. And Leonard Kleinock said this. He later said this. The first message on the Internet was L-O. As in, lo and behold. He went on to say, we didn't plan that. We didn't plan for L-O. But we couldn't have come up with a better message because it was short and it was prophetic. And once they hit send, lo and behold, welcome to the information age. The information age, which is the age that most people that kind of classify the time that we live in, at least one of the classifications of the time we live in, it's really changed everything for us. In some ways, it doesn't feel like that because it just feels normal now. But if you're of a certain age, you really know how much it's changed for us. First of all, it's changed the way we communicate, right? Let's say take texting, just for an example. Right? Which in some ways, for youth, is even an outdated mode. But here's what I learned uh, about texting. And there's something called a digital native and a digital immigrant. So if you don't know what these two are, a digital native is someone who's grown up in the digital age. They've grown up with devices in their hands. Right? They're, they're the kids that the grandkids say, help me, the grandparents say, help me figure out how to turn on my phone. I even went up to Eli earlier and I was like, hey, can you help me make sure this phone doesn't go silent so that I keep the, I mean, it doesn't go blank. I have to keep opening it up. He was like, oh yeah, I know how to do that. I mean, I kind of probably figured it out, but I'm a digital immigrant. I didn't grow up with this stuff. So if you're probably 40 or older, right, you've seen those those commercials where you don't become, you can become like your parents. It's like, now we're going to open a PDF. And it was like, oh, I'm not going to, I can't do that. But so one, one of the differences between a digital native and a digital immigrant in texting is that you know you're talking, if you're texting, you know you're talking to a digital immigrant when they text in full sentences. Raise your hand if you do that. You punctuation, you're like, oh, I ought to correct this. And you know you're talking to a digital native is there's all kinds of abbreviations. You don't know what they are. Am I right? This is the most amens I've gotten out of a sermon in a long time. So like LOL. Everybody just laugh out loud. YOLO. You only live once. The other day, I think one of my kids said to me, Dad, and he said this to me, he didn't text it to me, he said, Dad, BRB. I was like, what? What does that mean? He goes, Dad, be right back. Duh. You know, I was just like, I'm a digital immigrant. Like, it's changed the way we communicate with each other. It's changed, uh, it's changed how we 
we shop. How many of you bought most of your Christmas gifts online this year? Wow, brave people. Either that or didn't buy any Christmas gifts for anybody. I think, now Kim does most of the Christmas shopping. I think that we bought everything online. Almost everything online this year. One, because Kim was out of town on a nursing assignment. But what ended up happening was, is that um, boxes were coming to our door. So one day Kim called every day, like multiple boxes every day. So one day Kim called and said, hey, I'm ordering a bunch of Christmas presents. You'd be getting a lot of boxes at the door. Um, I want you to, to get them and hide them from the kids so they don't figure out what they're getting for Christmas. So I was like, it's too late. Every time a box shows up, my kid's like, we got a gift! And they walk in and they know. I was like, I can't even get out there fast enough. You, that, was, that ship has sailed. It's changed the way how we get to places. If any of you remember a time when you got directions over the phone and you wrote them down, all the young people are like, what are you guys talking about? One day, you'll get off your phones, pay attention. They're all texting. LOL, this guy's funny. Hey, youth, young people, one used to how we got places was you called the person, said, how do I get there? Okay, on 33rd, you want to take a right. And then you're going to turn into the neighborhood of Stepping Stone. You're going to go to the first stop sign. Then you're going to see this big house on the right. That's not our house. Then you're going to go past the park. You know how, and you're like, past the park. You know, and you're writing all this stuff down. And I think now, how in the world did we ever get anywhere? Have you ever thought that? And I'm still fairly convinced that even though our phones tell us how to get there, that Siri or Apple phone still has no clue how to get anywhere in Dallas. If you travel in Dallas, I miss the exit constantly. Like, exit here, and like, there's four. But it's also changed this, and maybe this may be as significant as anything else. Here's what has changed. The information age has changed what we can know. Today, we consume five times more information than we did even in 1989. And that's mostly because, you know what became publicly accessible in 1991? The World Wide Web. It's only 1991. Which in some ways feels like yesterday. In other ways, it feels like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? Once the World Wide Web become, became publicly accessible in 1991, lo and behold, information. This is nostalgic for many of us, but many of us probably, if you're a certain age, did your family have an Encyclopedia of Britannica? Kids are like, what's that? What's a book? That was like our internet back in the day. Like if you wanted to know something, 
you went to the Encyclopedia Britannica and you looked up and you found, right? But the problem with the Encyclopedia Britannica that, that I think is a, is, a, is, a, is a good thing about the digital age is that the Encyclopedia Britannica, while it gave you concise information about, it only gave you that information from one person's perspective. Which I think is now, it's not bad, but it can be problematic at times. So one of the good things that's come out of the whole information age is kind of the democratization of knowledge. It's good because we don't just get one perspective. And it was interesting as I was reading about this that when the printing press came out and books started to be printed, that there was a large suspicion and even kind of revolt and rebellion against the printing press and against books, particularly in England, because they thought it would be used by the powerful to consolidate more of their knowledge. Like, because if you couldn't read, then only those with power and money, right, could have more knowledge. And while there's, there's questions about, you know, the quality of information, the printing press and books ended up being really a, a leveling field in some cases as people began to learn how to read and information was shared, public libraries. So in many ways, it's good because it gives us lots of different perspectives. In fact, I'm teaching a course right now, or finishing up a course on global Christianity. In the time of COVID, it's been great. It's an online class, and one of the assignments is for them to choose a church somewhere in their world and participate in that church service online. You could have never got that in the 80s, or even the 90s, really, to see what, how people in Africa or in Asia worship. You could have never experienced that, unless you went there. But it's also challenging. And here's why it's challenging. There is just so much information out there. So many opinions. So many takes. I mean, five times we consume the amount of information that we did even like 30, 40 years ago. And it's a problem at times because it's largely unregulated. I mean... There's content and images which are easily accessible that aren't appropriate at all. Not only appropriate for children to look at, but appropriate for adults to look at. And it's all at your fingertip. And sometimes we go searching for that stuff. Sometimes we're just afraid that our kids just stumble onto it because that content is not just neutral out there it's looking for viewers it wants you but also another critique of the big problem is that it creates a platform for hate groups spew misinformation propaganda Here's the other problem. It's created a place, even though the democratization of information is really good, it's created a place and a space where everybody thinks that their opinion is authoritative.
and that it should be shared. Let me say this. And I really believe, I've learned this. You don't have to have an opinion on something. It's okay to say, I don't, I don't really know. I don't have an opinion on that. In an age where, which, what do you think about this? I don't really know. I think it's okay. It's honest. You don't have to manufacture something. But the question for us is this. Is that in an information age, how do we discern all of this knowledge? How do we discern what's true? How do we discern what's good? How, how do we discern what should be taken seriously and what not? I mean, we're consuming information all the time. It's like information overload. Like, how do we discern what we should pay attention to? What's true? What's good? What's worthy of our time? What's worthy of our energy? What's worthy of our attention? And this, by the way, excuse me, is not a new problem. It's not a new problem at all. It's, it spanned the course of human history and it's not, Christians are not immune from this as well. In a book Robert Weber wrote called Ancient Future Faith, he makes this argument that the first four centuries of Christianity, they look a lot like the situation we encounter today. Not in terms of technology, but in terms of the plurality of ideas that are out there. And he doesn't say that's a scary thing. He just says that's a reality. Competing visions for life in the first four centuries. How it should be lived, what is true, what should be taken seriously, what is good. So if you remember in Acts 17 when Paul went to Athens, there were so many different gods and so many competing ideas about the world. And then he goes up to the uh, Areopagus and it says that all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Does that not sound like the internet? Does that not sound like social media? Now, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Good for them to share ideas. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to listen and share ideas. And it's better that ideas are out there. What I'm talking about here is not saying, uh, let's shut down ideas. No. The democratization of ideas is fantastic. But it does create this challenge for us, right? About what is important. How do we discern what's good? How do we discern what's worthy to be paid attention to? In Matthew 7, Beginning in verse 15 through 20, Jesus actually, I think, encounters something like this that's similar to our day. He says this to his disciples, watch out for false prophets. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Not bad fruit, bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad, and a bad fruit is cut. <laughs> I've really messed this up. But a bad tree is cut down and thrown to the fire. Thus, you will know them by their fruits. Proofread, 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 right? 
But here's what I want you to get. Besides the mess up on the spelling. When he talks about how you discern what's worthy or what's good, what knowledge is good, what's worthy of my time and attention, what's true and what's good, he doesn't say, hey, pay particular attention to the words. Well, I think that's important. It strikes me that what he says is, pay attention to the fruits they're producing. Pay attention to the fruit that whatever they're talking about, what kind of fruit does this produce? Scripture is interested in fruit. You go all the way back into Genesis chapter 1, or Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and there's this tree of life. And God says you can eat any fruit off of any tree, but don't eat from the fruit, the tree, of the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it uses this idea, this metaphor of trees and fruit. And that ideas or information or knowledge produces things in our lives. And the question is, what do they produce? And it couldn't help but think about when Paul talks about what kind of God, what kind of fruits that the life with God produces or the fruits of the Spirit. And he says this in Galatians 5, beginning in verse 22. He says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So I want us to, as a way to kind of discern. By the way, not, the Internet's not going away. Despite some of you that wish it would. And by the way, most of us think that books are good. So just bear in mind that story earlier where there was a revolt against books because of, ah, oh, this is a technology that's so evil. We all encourage our kids to read books. So this is a tool that can produce fruit. But the question is, how do we go about living in a world in the information age where we discern what's good and true and worthy. And the first one, I think we should take the fruits of the Spirit and say, is it loving? Does it produce love? Now, I want to distinguish because I think sometimes we think we, we separate right, being right, from being loving. Have you ever known somebody? You're like, well, they're right, but man not very loving. Have you, ever, have you experienced that? Oh, man. Boy, do I like to be right. Most human beings like to be right. But Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love does what? Anybody know? Builds up. And this is what I think. I think, I think that you can't separate in God his loving kindness from his rightness. He is right because he is loving. And he's loving because he's right. Do you see how that kind of rightness produces the fruit of love? 
that we can ask the question, well, I may be right, but what is it producing? Is it producing love? Joy. There's so much in the world that is not good news. But we need to know about it. And this is why I talk about joy. We can't be Christians who have our heads stuck in the sand, but God calls us to be in the thick of people's lives and the problems and it, uh, the problems of the world and its pains and sorrows. But here's what I think it means to, to have joy as a discernment tool. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control even when all the data is to the contrary. Do you hear that? Joy is this sense of settledness that God is going to make it right eventually, or God is in control, even when all the data is against it. I don't have to feel good about what I see in the world. And as a Christian, I need to be engaged with things that are full of pain and suffering in the world. But can I have the kind of assurance? Does it produce in me the kind of insurance? Okay, God's got this. And I want to say, peace. Is what you're reading and thinking about engaging with, does it promote, promote peace or does it promote violence? Does it promote the kind of peace and justice God desires? Or is it promoting something else? And there is. There's a lot of promotion of violence, I think, today. Patience. Does it promote patience? Does it nurture in you the ability to suffer along with someone else? To have compassion, which is what the word compassion means, comes with. Passio means suffering with somebody. Can you suffer along with somebody? Is it kind of the kind of knowledge that allows you to be patient? Have forbearance. Is it kind? Does it produce kindness in you? Does it promote unselfishness? Does it promote compassion? Does it look to your own rights and grievances? Does it just affirm your own rights and grievances in the world, the things you're reading and the knowledge you're getting? Or does it look to what is best for others? Does it look to their concerns? goodness is it truthful just to stop and say is this worthy of my time and attention is it good is it faithful does it produce faithfulness in you does it produce in you the desire to be faithful to your neighbor to the ones you love to your neighbor to the ones you don't no. Does it produce in you the kind of faithfulness that God requires even towards our enemies? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Does it produce that kind of faithfulness in you? Gentleness. Is it harsh or brash? Is it trying to get a rise out of you and others around you? Merciful. It's the knowledge you're engaging 
the information age merciful? Does it promote you to be merciful? And finally, self-control. Do you lose control? Or does it produce fruit in you of self-control? Lo and behold, we live in an information age. It is both exciting and a challenging age, but there's lots of fruit to pick. And the question is, what kind of fruit are you allowing to be produced?